0: God is so good I mean, sending his son just to die for us so that we can have a restored relationship with the God that created the universe. And this series was kind of breathed out of that idea exactly. That there's a God that loves us so much that will chase after us if we're just willing to take a step towards him. This is the final sermon in this sermon series, which is kind of a celebration, because that means Mark's coming back on Tuesday. Yes. That's also kind of sad, because that means we're done with the series, and that also means for anybody that's a teacher or has to go back to school, that school is coming up very quick, but The Art of Being has been all about creating space and creating practices in our lives to get us before God. Because it's when we're before God that Jesus transforms our hearts to then live the way that Jesus lived. And so a little history for me. When I came here to Creekside, I came from a pastoral position of just running. We were doing a church plant. Our head pastor had a mental breakdown. I took on the interim role for three months and just running. I was exhausted. Uh, Heidi was exhausted. And I was kind of burned out and a little bit untrusting of church people, to be honest. And we end up leaving that role and coming here. And Mark and the staff are just, (laughs) they're the cream of the crop. Uh, They're beautiful people And it's no wonder that last week I was able to look out at our congregation and say, I can't believe the fact that there's former pastors in our congregation that come here to this place. Because you all are so beautiful and amazing and put on display who God is so well towards others that people feel restored. People feel like they can come here to experience a real genuine relationship with you guys and with God. And today, uh, we have a blessing of having a person from our congregation who is a former pastor who is now doing a ministry called Standing Stone, which is a ministry that helps pastors finish well, but not just finish well. Uh, I've been meeting with this person. They help pastors recalibrate their heart to what really matters, to have a work-life balance that creates this wholeness in their life to be present for their family, be present for their kids. And this man uh, is married, has three kids. They're amazing. We had one of them on our stage uh, during Christmas Eve, and I was able to interview him. I really admire this man, and I look up to him in a way that I I don't even feel like I can describe, uh, because his wisdom has meant the world to me and my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife, and in my leadership here. And so without me continually uh, blabbering, because I feel like I'm about to cry, uh, can you guys please give a loud warm welcome to Kyle Wagner.
1: Thank you, Nathan. After that introduction, there's nowhere to go but down, so um, sorry. (laughs) It's a joy and an honor. It's a privilege to get to be here with you guys, and I'm excited just to open God's word with you and see uh, how he moves and speaks to, to draw each one of us to himself, to transform us, to become more like Christ. And so as I jump in, um, just to share one little thing about me, is um, I love sports. I have my whole life. I know you're not surprised by this stature and, you know, the <laughs> physique here. Why are you laughing? Don't hurt my feelings. I just started. I love sports. It's been a great place for me to meet friends, to be challenged, to learn, to grow, and to have a lot of fun. And by the grace of God, he gave me a little bit of athletic coordination. Um, So it's been, it has been a fun journey. Um, And my favorite sport my whole life has been soccer. I love soccer. Um, But what I don't love about soccer is the whole running thing and like the fitness thing. You know, like I did that to get to play soccer. I didn't have any joy though in the actual running and the fitness. So when I moved to California from Dallas, Texas in 2006, um, I started making friends and before I know it, one of these friends is coming to me and he's saying, hey, Kyle, let me tell you about this really cool thing. It's called Tough Mudder. We've got to do it. I'm like, okay. So I start looking into it. I'm like, I, I like challenges, right? I like, um, I like hard things. I like um, being active. Um, but then as I started to look into it, I, I realized, wait, this is like running up a mountain at North Star. That's 8,600 elevation for 12 miles. Um, no thanks. But then I was looking at the obstacles. I was like, oh, wait, here's, here's the hook. The obstacles looked fun. They looked challenging. Yes, there, you know, was something about an ice bath, an electrical shock, but, you know, surely it's not that bad, right? Let's go. Let's do this thing. So in 2012, September, um, we, we did our first Tough Mudder. And I'll be honest, I didn't get quite as much training uh, beforehand as I'd hoped, but I was determined just to finish, like that's my goal. Just finish the race, don't embarrass myself too bad, and just make it to the finish line. It was a beautiful Saturday morning, we start the run, we're knocking out the first couple obstacles, okay, alright, feeling pretty good. And then we hit this spot where it, it's, it's just this grade, and it was just like climbing the mountain. All of a sudden, I'm like dying, just sucking for air, and I'm literally thinking, oh my gosh, i got to turn around. I'm not going to finish. This is so humiliating. There's no way I'm going to finish this race. (sighs) Despite the fear, the burning lungs, with the encouragement and support of my buddies, Doug and Brent, we kept pushing up the mountain, obstacle after obstacle, mile after mile. And after pushing, all of a sudden, we kind of reached a a part that that, uh, flattened out. Um, Let's see here. All right, so here's my proof, okay? That's me on the right. Um, So we reach this, this section that flattens out, and we come up to the obstacle that we all feared. It was called the electric eel, okay? I don't know how this was legal, but you crawl down under barbed wire on your belly in about a foot of water to army crawl about 50 feet while live electrical wires are dangling down through the barbed wire, okay? You think I'm making this up. No, I'm not. That is what it looked like, all right? So as they're different voltage, so you don't know if you're just going to get a cute little ping or if you're going to get, like, jolted and scream. So we're going through, and it's just like, just get to the end, just get to the end. So here's the, the cool thing is at the end of that obstacle, there was pure joy on the other side for two reasons, okay? One, we took a minute and a breather to turn around and watch the other people behind us, and it was awesome. I mean, like... Grown men and women just squealing and grunting and letting out noises that are not human was hysterical and just great for my psyche at that moment. But secondly, it hit me. Oh my gosh, we just reached the pinnacle. Like we're at the top of the mountain. The rest of the race is downhill. And it just struck me like, I'm going to finish. I'm going to make it to the end. And what came with that uh, realization was tremendous freedom and actual joy. Like first half of the race, I hated. It was just misery, just trying to suck it up and get through. The second half was actual joy, because I could see crossing that finish line. I could see completing the race. And, and yes, it meant at the end on the left there, one more electrical wire shock that you get to run through and try not to fall on your face. But then there on the right, that's us crossing the finish line. We made it through. Today, as Nathan said, we get to wrap up our series that we've been in since May called The Art of Being, and we're going to see that the journey and process of learning how to be with Jesus connects to this idea of running well the race of faith that God has called each one of us to. And if we know how to run this race of faith, we can finish well, no matter what life throws at us. In the series, we've covered these 10 time-tested practices that Christians throughout the centuries since Jesus came have engaged with to draw near to God, to be with Him. Right? Things like prayer, silence and solitude, study, service, Sabbath, worship, simplicity, meditation, fasting, celebration. Why have we spent so much time on this topic? because we want to invite each one of you into your process of intentionally cultivating space to be transformed by Jesus and then to live the way that he lived. Why is this so important in our day and age? I think it's because our culture threatens to form us into a mold of consumers, chasing after the good life, the American dream. And I wonder if there aren't two particular ways that That it's difficult for us. First is the pain of life, right? We all experience different forms of suffering and loss, and that pain can pull us off the path of following Jesus. And yet, simultaneously, we also have to contend with living in a day of relative ease and comfort in many ways. The affluence that we enjoy. The wealth that we enjoy and, and the relative ease of, of being a Christian here in the United States it, it doesn't on the surface cost us anything it doesn't threaten our physical safety it doesn't cost us much and so the comforts and the affluence and the ease can likewise become this thing that distracts us and pulls our eyes off of Jesus and off of the race that he's called us to run. We start listening to the voices that that woo us toward prosperity and and figuring out how to live our best life now, and yet we're in this broken, sin-stained world that's not our home. So how can we stay engaged and faithful following Jesus in the midst of all the noise, the distractions, the temptations, as well as those limitless opportunities before us? It's not easy. At the beginning of the series, we looked at Jesus' instruction in John 15 where he paints this picture, right? Where we are mere branches, powerless in ourselves, but we're invited to to connect and to abide into his life-giving vine that could empower us to bear fruit. Listen to what he says as he wraps up that section, John 15. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Don't miss this. When we abide with Jesus, We are empowered to bear fruit in living as Jesus lived, which glorifies the Father, confirms our identity as His disciples. And our reward is what? This gift of joy that fills our life and our being. So we're going to wrap up our Art of Being series today looking at Hebrews 12 one to three. Feel free to turn there if you've got your Bibles on your device. And we're going to see what it looks like to run our race of faith well, all the way to the finish line. And I'm going to share with you at the end a little tool that can empower us to engage with life-giving practices that we've been exploring in a way that can hopefully sustain us for the race of a lifetime. All right, now as we get into Hebrews 12, some quick context, right? The church in that first century was made up mostly of Jewish Christians. Um, and gentile christians it was not an easy day and age to follow jesus right they're under the harsh uh, harsh oppression of rome still Um, the jews were treated horribly and then when when jesus initiated the church for christians it was even even worse because you're hated by the romans and you're hated by the jews and for jewish christians in particular The oppression, the persecution was intense. In chapter 10 of of the book of Hebrews, he talks about a lot of uh, the trials, the pain, the suffering that these Christians had to endure in following Jesus, including being thrown into jail, including having their property seized from them. And the writer says, and yet you you, uh, accepted the seizure of your property with joy. So this is not a context of, of wealth and ease and affluence. This is a context of great difficulty and suffering. And for the Jewish Christians as well, in particular, there was this strong pull to just, to just ease back, slide back into the Jewish customs and social structures and their community that they'd known their whole lives instead of forging this brand new path of following Jesus' way. Let's read this. Passage. We're going to see the writer here in Hebrews is going to compel these Jewish Christians to hold fast their confession and their faith in Jesus and continue in trusting obedience. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus The first thing we're going to see here is that God assigns to everyone a specific race of faith to run. It's how it's always been, even before Christ came. Right In chapter 11, we're, we're given this historical faith heritage. A beautiful but broken people. These inspiring examples who've shown us how to faithfully follow God for the long haul. Often at great expense and suffering and cost. And they went before us, setting an example, bearing witness to the possibilities of a life of faith. So just a simple encouragement this morning, guys. We're not alone as we run our race. We have a history. We have a heritage that we can look back to for encouragement. And also, obviously, we have one another. We have a community to run our race with. But Here's what I want to remind you today. Now is our day. Now is our turn to run the race that God has prescribed for each one of us. It's our turn, you guys. God calls us, he invites us to run the race that only you can run because it's the one he has set before us. I know on staff here there's a lot of love for Star Wars and um, Fred Rogers, but I'm hoping that you guys also can appreciate some J.R. Tolkien um, My oldest son, Carter, has been in a fun stage of reading through The Hobbit and now The Lord of the Rings, and so we recently got to watch The Hobbit movies with him. I just love this story, and I love this unlikely hero, Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo's not great. He's not strong. He's not impressive. Especially compared to these battle-worn dwarves that he's following. But (laughs) he made a great, faithful, and effective burglar. And that's what they needed. In fact, without Bilbo, the company of dwarves would never have made it past the orcs or the goblins in the mountain or smog the dragon. He even helped uh, Thorin overcome the power, uh, the controlling force that came with with the power and the greed when he he found the gold. And it wasn't because he wasn't afraid either. But despite his fears, Bilbo took each courageous step forward into the unknown and finished his race. The race that was set aside specifically for him. Prescribed specifically for him. Guys, that's you and that's me today. God has prescribed a specific race that only you and I can run. And he, he structured our lives to be this race. To where we get to be like student-athletes. Well, we run this race, and God's using everything in our lives, everything around us, to teach us and to form us. Our families, our relationships, our vocation, our work lives, our income, the things that we own, our physical health, our emotional health, our different life seasons and stages. God is using all of it to train us, to teach us. So what if we could take that posture of a student-athlete, not needing to be perfect, but just continuously asking God, God, what are you wanting to teach me today? How are you wanting to form me through this situation, through this relationship, through this opportunity, as we run our race? I hope there's a sense of freedom that that stirs in you. But I also want to point out the value and the importance of how we respond as we run our race. As we think about a series like this and consider the individual invitations that the Lord has spoken to you personally of how He wants you to apply and to integrate into your life these spiritual practices into your race of faith. Because these things shape who you are as you go into the world in the name of Jesus. So today, just a quick reflection, are you recognizing the race of faith that God has specifically and uniquely prescribed for you? Do you recognize that He's created you and gifted you and equipping and He's calling you to run that race well with Him? Secondly, we're going to see that running our race, of, our race to finish well requires some grace-driven effort. Right? Let's consider what kind of race that we're in. The word for race in the original Greek is actually agona. So think agony, think agonize. Right, That's part of why I started with Tough Mudder. Right? It seemed to make sense. Like, This isn't a leisurely walk or run. It's a contest. It's marked by struggle and by opposition. It's a battle because it takes place where? In this broken world, corrupted by sin, ruled by Satan. We've been called out of that. So now we are strangers and exiles, representing the kingdom of light. But we're under the force and the oppression of the slimy king of darkness that wants to break us and make us drop out of our race. So the writer instructs us, there's a way to run this race, to finish well. It will require grace-driven effort. And he's going to give us a defensive practice He's going to provide some flavor for how we run this race. And then he's going to offer an offensive practice. So first, let's think about how do we practice good defense, right? He says, we must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. We must throw off. We must get rid of anything that hinders our running of our race well. There's an intensity here. There's a a vigilance, a seriousness about this. And there's two categories he addresses. First, weights that can slow us down and hinder our running. And then secondly, sin that seeks to enslave and control our lives. I may be showing my age a little bit, but as a youth pastor, we would often do these silly contests, right? These dress-up relays where we'd make kids put on either really oversized clothes or awkward things like flippers and things, and then run through some kind of course or obstacle and then come back and then take it off. Next person goes, right? It's silly. It makes for a good laugh. People fall down. Guys, we can't run this race like that. I think God wants us to see ourselves as real athletes here, engaging like a track and field competition. What do you notice about these guys' clothing, aside from there's not a whole lot there? It's light, it's streamlined, it's whatever's not going to hinder them from running as fast and effectively as they can. And of these two things, you know what's interesting is sometimes I wonder if it's not the weights that are more difficult to deal with. Because they're often the gray areas, they're areas that require more discernment, more rigorous honesty with ourselves as, as to how they're impacting us. And some of the practices we've covered in this series address this. You know, things like fasting, abstaining from food, that's a good thing, that's a gift from God. But it's saying no to food for a, a, a purpose of attuning our senses to God. So we can be more aware and spiritually present to the reality of the kingdom around us. Think about simplicity, cutting out the excesses. Why? Because everything we buy owns a piece of us. So there's a wisdom to cutting out those excesses and to to living with simplicity so we can run more light and free. Think about silence, purposely cutting out the noises of life, especially with our media and technology. How do we purposely remove those distractions Those things that can consume our minds, our attention, and pull us into those wormholes so that we can run freely and fully focused on Jesus. To run well also means laying off, getting rid of the more obvious, blatant sin. Those things that tempt us in our weakness to try to control us. And we know this isn't easy because the nature of sin and temptation is is it offers us a promise to satisfy us and then it never delivers, right? Right? Or it takes a legitimate need that we have and it it tries to pull us into meeting it in illegitimate ways. But it only ends in destruction. I want to remind you this morning that repentance from sin is always a call to exchange death for life. To exchange slavery for freedom in Christ Christ. It's an invitation to exchange bitterness and resentment for a heart of forgiveness and peace. To exchange greed for a heart of generosity and open handedness. I'm not pointing to you guys because you're all the bad sinners, by the way. To exchange dehumanizing things like pornography for a heart of purity that honors humans. To exchange things like a life of dishonesty and deception for a heart and a life of truthfulness that lives in the light. So I want to offer a discernment question for you, particularly with those weights. But to regularly stop and ask yourself, is this thing, maybe it's a habit, a person or a relationship, is this thing helping me grow in my faith and joyful obedience to Jesus? Where is it hindering me? Like, we have the freedom to regularly evaluate and take stock of, of what is taking our attention, what we're giving ourselves to, and to ask questions like this. And, friends, if there's something that's hindering you in your race, why would you hold on to it? Why would you continue? Because Jesus wants to set you free to run well. For me personally, recently, this has looked like um, a fresh conviction from God about technology and media in my life, particularly through my phone and particularly at night. I tend to be kind of worn down by the day and it's real easy just to give myself to ESPN or the news or YouTube or whatever. And it's not necessarily evil or wrong things, but the amount of time that it can end up sucking, the way that it pulls me away from being actually present to my family so I'm not just physically in the room but mentally and emotionally completely somewhere else. And then the way that it can just totally throw off my sleep habits and not getting quality sleep, not ending my day well so then I can start the next day well. And it may seem small but guys this is a huge part of my race of faith and it's an invitation from the Lord. And I'll be honest I don't even like the humility it takes to 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 embrace technology boundaries it can feel restricting and limiting i have to remember though god is wanting to set me free to run more faithfully more fully fixed um focused on him now there's a couple flavors as well that he's going to point out to us that we run with intentionality and with endurance all right where do i see intentionality because he he says run don't walk, don't meander, don't stroll. This is a race that must be run. It's not a, a, a fun family 5k. It's not a, a turkey trot. <laughs> it's a tough mutter. We got to expect and anticipate there's going to be pain, there's going to be struggle, there's going to be opposition. So don't be surprised. And therefore, it's also going to demand endurance. The capacity to bear up under difficult circumstances, to withstand resistance, to persevere through suffering and trial. So don't be surprised, friends. Recognize this race will require intentionality. It will demand of us endurance. It will require discipline. But the beauty of it is that it's all grace-driven and grace-fueled. This isn't a try harder, do better. Pick yourself up and find a way to get it done. It's not duty driven, it's not guilt driven. It is a joy driven, grace fueled run. So we've got some defense, we've got some flavor, let's get into our offense. We're gonna see uh, the source of our inspiration and power to run in a way to finish our race well. And that is that finishing well comes through focusing on Jesus, All right? So we've recognized God has designed a specific race that he's called each one of us to run. He's provided us with some help of engaging defensively, shedding weights and sin that can trip us up, and to run with the power of grace now by looking to Jesus. We fix our eyes, our focus, our attention upon Jesus. Why? Why and how does this help us? Because you guys, Jesus is not just a cool role model or example for us. No, no, no. He's the very window by, through which we see the glory of God and are transformed by it. We're healed by it. We're strengthened by it. So looking to Jesus, the writer says, is, it's this focusing our attention on who? On the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does that phrase mean? At the beginning of his letter, the writer of Hebrews reminds us the very first, in the very first verses that Jesus is God's Son, whom God appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the world. Through Christ Jesus, Jesus was involved with the Father and the Spirit from the point of creation, establishing the very foundation of all time and space and material Jesus created the world and was intimately involved revealing God's glory throughout all of history. And then that amazing moment 2,000 years ago, Jesus enters into humanity in his incarnation and he embodies the Father's nature and glory for us. He enters into the darkness of our sinful world and lived 33 years of perfect and complete trust and surrender to the Father's will and purposes. We see in Jesus' life, through the scriptures, perfect wisdom and knowledge. We see love and generosity. We see him working healing and restoration over broken lives, all while enduring the same weaknesses, the same struggles, the same suffering and temptation that you and I experience. Jesus is the perfecter of faith because he completed his race and provided our victory in the process. See, he fulfilled his mission when, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, including that shame he experienced, dying a criminal's death by crucifixion. But for Jesus, such shame was a small cost to pay in service to his Father's will and glory. And then through his victorious resurrection, he would then sit down in victory at the right hand of God's throne, assuring our victory as well. Listen to one commentator's description of Jesus. F.F. Bruce says, the whole life of Jesus was characterized by unbroken and unquestioning faith in his heavenly Father. Have you thought about that? It was sheer faith in God, unsupported by any visible or tangible evidence that carried him through the taunting, the scourging, the crucifying, and the more bitter agony of rejection, desertion, and dereliction. You see, Jesus not only completed his race in perfect surrender and obedience, but he also made it possible for you and I to run our race to completion Jesus is the one on whom our faith depends from beginning to end. He won his race to accomplish salvation for us, and now he invites and empowers us to enter and to run our race all the way to the end. Well, how can we practically focus our attention on Jesus to draw life and power from him? I want to I suggest two ways today, guys. One is um, probably more obvious. We set our focus, our attention on Jesus as we read and study and reflect on his life. We engage in in the gospels and the scriptures and great books written about his life. We consider the way he lived, his lifestyle, the way he was with people, the way he spoke and related. We fix our eyes on him. We fix our minds on him. We remember and reflect on Jesus' endurance as he loved perfectly not only his wayward followers, but even his enemies. The very sinners who inflicted such brutal hostility upon him. The writer here says, consider Jesus. Reason thoroughly. Think through what was that like for him. What would it have felt like? Because when we consider the magnitude of suffering Jesus endured, We see God's beauty and glory on display and our hearts are inspired and transformed by him so we don't grow weary of this difficult life, so we don't lose heart in the midst of our own battles. There's a second invitation that comes from earlier in the book of Hebrews that paints an additional way of looking to Jesus and focusing our attention on him. And it's in how we Not only read about Him, but how we come to Him. How we relate to Him. You see, not only can we reflect on Jesus' life and beauty, we're invited to come to Jesus ourselves. To actually turn to Him. To commune with Him. To draw near to His loving presence that's available to us today. So in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer explains how Jesus is not some distant Savior. He is near. As our great high priest, Jesus now, today, invites us to draw near to him in any and every circumstance we face. Whether it's joyous or painful. Read what he says. Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Friends, do you know Jesus as your high priest who invites you to draw near in your times of greatest need? Do you realize that Jesus became human so that he could get us in our humanity more than we even understand ourselves? You see, by becoming human, Jesus experienced the full gambit of life's ups and downs, the successes and the failures, the beauty and the suffering. And this passage says that Jesus was tempted in every respect, just as we are. He understands the power of temptation the allure of it. And as the only one who never gave into it, he understands it more completely than we even do. So friends, hear me this morning. Jesus gets you. I know I often struggle to understand that. I think he's so far removed. He's so holy. He's so great. He can't relate. That's not what this is saying. This is saying, no, Jesus gets us. In your fears and insecurities, He gets you. In your shame, maybe from hidden addiction or depression, He understands the fight you're in. In your loneliness and rejection, He lived that Himself. In your anger and bitterness, friends, He knows your struggle. He can and desires to join you in your suffering to offer you a compassion more powerful than you could ever imagine. There's an awesome work by Dane Orland called Gentle and Lowly, and I want to share with you an excerpt from it. He says, All our natural inclinations tell us that Jesus is with us, He's on our side, present and helping, when life is going well. But this text in Hebrews 4 says the opposite. It says that it's in our weakness that Jesus sympathizes with us. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. When the fallenness of the world closes in on us and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like and sits close to us, embraces us, with us. Solidarity. We are never alone. That sorrow that feels so isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. He says, our sinless high priest is not one who needs rescue, but who provides it. This is why we can go to him to receive mercy and find grace. He himself is not trapped in the hole of sin with us. He alone can pull us out. His sinlessness is our salvation Not only can he pull us out of the hole of sin, don't miss this. He alone desires to climb in and bear our burdens. Jesus is able to sympathize. He co-suffers with us. So if you are in Christ, you have a friend who in your sorrow will never lob down a pep talk from heaven. He cannot bear to hold himself at a distance. Nothing can hold him back. His heart is too bound up with yours. is that beautiful? Do we believe that this morning? This is our great Savior. Not just for the super saints, not for pastors or church leaders, for everyone who is in Christ Jesus. He is available to you. And the writer says, Look to Jesus, focus your attention, fix your eyes on him. He is the one who can strengthen us to continue running our race of faith when life is well and going great, and especially when it's not. Uh, As a personal experience of this, a few years ago, uh, we found ourselves on the outside of a church community that was a core part of our lives for years. And it was one of the most absolutely painful, lonely, confusing, and desperate times in my life. I couldn't shake feelings of rejection, betrayal, loneliness that just dominated my emotional world. And it was in that place of difficulty and darkness that Jesus met me with a gift. He met me with his solidarity, with an understanding, a comfort and compassion that became my rescue line. I came to realize in that space that Jesus had experienced all those same sufferings only at an incredibly greater magnitude. Rejection, isolation, loneliness. And he invited me to look to him and as as I set my heart's gaze on him, he met me there with this healing grace that would give me hope and endurance to keep moving forward. To not give up to take another step, another step to keep running my race. Guys, I know life's hard. I don't know exactly what each one of you is facing, but I know your lives are not perfect and easy. But hear this. It's in our weaknesses and in our struggles that Jesus wants to come to us. In fact, every single one of them is an invitation that he wants to meet us. They don't have to be extreme. Maybe you're facing a major life change and it feels overwhelming. Maybe you've got a, a big decision looming that you need to make. Maybe you've stepped into a great opportunity, but there's this weight or there's this pressure that feels crushing. Maybe you're facing health crisis. Maybe there's a relationship that's been damaged or that's ended. Wherever you are, whatever you're enduring, Whether it's pain from your past, weakness in your present, or maybe feelings of hopelessness about your future. Know that Jesus sees you and he invites you to draw near to his throne of grace. To let him see you as you focus your attention on him. And he wants to offer you his healing to restore you with his perfect, unconditional love. But will you turn to him? Will you look to him? Will you fix your eyes and your attention, not on your circumstances, but on Him? As we wrap up, um, I want to finish with some flowers. (laughs) Give some levity here. Flowers are are nice, right? They're lovely. They're beautiful. This is actually from uh, a creeksider's backyard. Thank you, Ben. What do you see here? At this angle, you can't necessarily totally see the the just the the beauty of the art, the arch of, of these flowers as they create a a lovely space. What's underneath those flowers? A trellis. Not necessarily easy to see, but I guarantee you these flowers would not be in this shape were <laughs> they not connected to a trellis. If you're familiar at all with. With winemaking, with vineyards, you know that grapes have to live on a structure in order to thrive and be healthy and taste sweet and delicious, right? Grapes depend on a trellis. And this tool that I want to share with you today is a form of a trellis. Because these spiritual practices we've been sharing with you are not meant to be burdensome. They're means of grace to make your life lighter and more joyful as you walk more closely with Jesus because each practice is one of those windows through which we're invited to look to Jesus to fix our eyes on him and set our attention on him and there's a way that we can actually structure our life with that intentionality to help provide that endurance to have a consistent view into the glory of God and recognize his presence in our lives at all times. Just like Jesus' imagery in in John 15, he wants us to be fruit-bearing branches. And as such, we would benefit greatly by some sort of structure in our lives that will help expose us to the spiritual nutrients and elements to enrich and nurture our connection with God. So in gardening, a trellis is a simple framework of vertical supports and horizontal cross pieces that's flat and can train plants, just like shrubs, young trees, vines, to grow up and against an object. And I want to introduce you today to what's called a rule of life, which is simply a spiritual trellis, a structure or rhythm for our lives that can enable us to pay attention to God in everything we do. This idea was created by uh, some of the monastic fathers of our faith uh, in the 2nd through the 6th century. St. Benedict was um, one of the most important uh, people who kind of formed this idea. And real quick, I know you see that, that phrase, rule of life, and if it's like, I just have so many negative associations, like you, rules, like you can't, you can't, you can't. No, that's not what this is. The Greek word for rule there is actually connected to the Latin word of, for trellis. That's all this is. Here's the thing. I expect every single one of us has a default trellis in our lives. It's the habits, it's the practices, it's the people, it's the places, it's the things that make up our daily routines, our weekly routines. We all have a trellis. The question is, what is it formed by? What has shaped it? Is it a default trellis? That's the things that we learned in childhood and so we just adopted them or the things that our culture has thrown at us and and shaped us by? Or is it designed according to God's kingdom and his values? See, the idea here would be to intentionally engage with God in crafting your own trellis to live on purpose, to abide in Christ, to become more fruitful spiritually. So what does that look like? Well, there's many forms of a, tre- of a rule of life, a trellis. Here's one of them. It takes four buckets of life, four categories, areas of our lives, okay? Prayer, think of those spiritual practices that we do to connect with God. Rest maybe not necessarily one we would think as being a core thing, but it's so important, Our relationships in our work. All right? One way you might start to approach this is consider those 10 practices from our Art of Being series and consider what would it look for me to respond to God's invitation and bring one or two of those into my life. All right? If you're new in your faith, you're new in following Jesus, don't feel overwhelmed by this. You don't need to listen to anything else I say about this trellis. But I, I would strongly encourage you to consider How is God inviting you to be more present to Him and to engage with Him and to respond to His grace through these spiritual practices? So if we look at these ways of being with Jesus and these components of our lives, and there's many other things that can help fuel and foster our relationship with Jesus There's actually some printouts on the table in the back here. If you want to grab a hard copy of this, you can. There's questions on the back. And so hopefully you'll find this encouraging. The first question about crafting your own trellis starts with this. Write down everything you do or hope to do that nurtures your spirit and fills you with delight. Okay? This is not a weight to be burdensome. We're throwing those weights off, right? This is a support, a way of living intentionally. What are the people, places, things you do that fill you with delight and connect your soul to God and his beauty? Right? So there's a whole process of going about this for sake of time. um, I'll just be quick here. But a couple things. One, your trellis needs to fit you. Not your spouse, not your friend, not your spiritual hero. (laughs) Okay? Your your trellis needs to fit you and God's unique design of you. No two trellises should look alike. So don't get into comparing here. Engage with God, and I would strongly encourage you, engage with somebody else you trust. Maybe somebody in your discipleship group or gospel community or or Bible study. Engage with others as you engage with God and craft your trellis. Um, And also be aware, especially for somebody like me, the pitfall of letting performance-based thinking and perfectionism and those things twist this around. This isn't about works righteousness. This isn't trying to impress God. We cannot add anything to the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been laid upon us through our faith in him. Okay, so this isn't about improving ourselves. This is about engaging with God, responding to God's grace, being intentional in how we run our race, and then watching God's grace bear his fruit through us. So, I'm just going to skip over this. Um, a Final challenge. Consider collaborating with God and others to design your own spiritual rhythms, whether that's a rule of life or just in your own life, that will overflow into living the way Jesus lived. And maybe think about and use this natural transition out of summer and into fall in the school year as a great natural restart to engage with these practices or to restart some practices. And then invite somebody you love and trust to cheer you on and to run that race with you. I'm going to close this out in prayer. And with reading these verses from Revelation 3, where Jesus speaks to the believers in the first century. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. And he who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Lord Jesus, thank you for your gracious invitation, how you knock on the door of our hearts and our lives every day, because you want to come in and dine and commune with us. Lord, would you speak to each one of us, would you lead us, and give us the grace to respond to your invitations, that we would live lives of communing with you, that we could run this race of faith, That we could experience more of your joy, more of your victory as we await that perfect rest that you have for us in your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name.